and continue here to hear God's word from Luke chapter 2. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which is told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you for the great things that we have seen and heard. Father, may we glorify you and praise you even as the shepherds did. May we ponder these things in our hearts as Mary did. Father, we thank you for this good news of great joy to all people. That Christ, the Savior, has come into our world. We thank You for the miracle of the Incarnation and all Christ has come to accomplish all He continues to do in the world, now reigning over all from Your right hand in heaven. Father, strengthen our faith in Him that we might serve Him. This we pray in His name. Amen. We are in the season of Christmas. Yes, this season. Christmas is not just a day. It is a 12-day season. Beginning December 25th and running through January 5th, and then of course that gives way to Epiphany uh, on January 6th. This is then the 5th of the 12 days of Christmas. It's also Christmas Sunday, the first Sunday in the Christmas season. What is Christmas all about? Of course, Christmas is a celebration of Christ. Uh, The word Christmas itself is very interesting, Christ Mass. That word mass is actually the last word of the medieval Latin liturgy. It means to send. It means being sent forth. That word mass, we get words like dismissal from it, or the word missile, or uh, the word mission even. So what is Christ's mass? It is the mission of the Christ. It is the sending of the Christ. That's what we're celebrating. The sending of the Christ into the world by His Father. But why do we make such a big deal out of the birth of this baby? Babies, after all, are born all the time, and it may be a big deal to the family that gives birth, but what does it mean for everybody else? What was so special about this birth? Why all the parties, all the presents, all the songs and the customs and traditions that have grown up around this day in which we celebrate, this season in which we celebrate the birth of Christ? You know, we don't continue celebrating births Uh, birthdays for other children who were born centuries ago. Why do we do that with Jesus? 
Well, Christmas is really a celebration of what we could call Christology. You can't separate Christmas from Christology. What is Christology? It's about who Christ is and about what He's done. Christology is about Christ's person and His work. We celebrate Christmas because of who Christ is and what He came to do. He is utterly unique. What He accomplished has changed the world. The meaning of history and the meaning of your life is found in that baby born on Christmas Day and laid in a manger. You really can't separate the celebration of Christmas from the doctrine of Christ's personal work. Obviously, our culture tries to do that in various ways, but it really doesn't work. You cannot celebrate Christmas rightly unless you understand this doctrine. And the doctrine emerges from the story. The doctrine, the Christology, arises from the story the Gospels tell. The doctrine of Christmas, then, is not abstract. It is embodied. It's embedded in a story. We can't understand who Christ is apart from understanding these stories. So what is Christmas? Well, of course, it is the story of a miraculous birth as Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary. But the key to understanding Christmas is to look in two directions at the same time. We have to look in two directions at the same time. We have to look back into the Old Testament. And we also have to look ahead to the end of the Gospels. Only in this way can we make sense out of Christmas. The birth narratives, these narratives about Christ's birth, pull together numerous threads from the Hebrew Scriptures and fulfill them. And at the same time, these birth narratives also anticipate what is to come at the end of the Gospel accounts in Christ's death and resurrection. And so you could say the Christmas narratives are all about fulfillment and foreshadowing. Fulfilling what has come before and foreshadowing what is to come. Which means Christmas really can't be understood as an isolated event. It has to be seen as part of a larger package. And so you can't separate Christmas from everything else in the Scripture that comes before. Going back to the very beginning, even going back to Genesis, Christmas is rooted in the promises of the Old Covenant. But you also can't separate Christmas from what comes next. You can't separate Christmas from Good Friday and Easter. And in the birth narratives, there are all kinds of clues that point to these connections. We especially see symmetries between Christ's birth and then Christ's death and resurrection. Symmetries between the opening of the Gospel and its close. Start with Mary. She's a good place to start. Start with Mary. Mary can be understood as a new Eve. We have to reach back into Genesis to understand who Mary is. Mary can be understood as a new Eve giving birth to the promised seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15 who has come to crush the serpent's head. To reverse the curse. To, to, to bring back the blessing of creation. The blessings of the garden. Mary is barren. No, she's not quite barren like other barren women in Scripture. Like Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and Hannah and Manoah's wife and so forth. But she is barren. She's barren because she's a virgin. But God's Spirit conceives a child in her womb. Mary will mother this child, but God is truly the father of this child. But her virgin womb points to the virgin tomb Christ will be placed in after His death. 
We're told it's a tomb in which no man had been placed before. When Christ is buried, no man has been in that tomb before. It's a virgin tomb. Matching the virgin womb. All through Scripture, in fact, there is a connection between the womb of the woman and the tomb of the earth. In fact, the earth is kind of tomb and womb. It's kind of a womb and a tomb together. Uh, there's a connection here, though, between uh, the woman and her womb and the earth as womb and tomb. Uh, there's a connection between mothers and what we might call mother earth. The earth is a kind of mother from which the man was made in the beginning in Genesis. And then he returns to mother earth in his death. So think about the words of Job after his suffering begins. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Well, he's not going to really return to his mother's womb, but he's going to return to Mother Earth, and there's a connection there that he's making. Or think about David in Psalm 139. He says he was knit together in the innermost parts of the earth. Well, of course, he was really knit together in his mother's womb, but there, the earth, Mother Earth, we might say, is a kind of stand-in. There's a connection between the womb of his mother and the womb of the earth. Given these this imagery, given these connections, we can say that Jesus' miraculous birth from the womb of His mother points ahead to His miraculous rebirth from the tomb of the earth. He turns the tomb of the earth into a kind of womb as He comes forth from the tomb, the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus opens Mary's womb and He opens Joseph's tomb. He came forth from His mother at His birth. He will come forth from Mother Earth at His rebirth in His resurrection, transforming tomb into womb. In fact, when Jesus was born, Luke tells us He was laid in a manger, which is a kind of feeding trough for animals. Now, most nativity sets that, that I've seen, and probably you as well, show something like a wooden box where Jesus would have been laid. Archaeology uh, suggests to us that it was more likely uh, made out of stone and even shaped somewhat like a coffin. Uh, if you actually look at what these mangers in, in the ancient world, going back to the time of Jesus, what they looked like. At his birth, he's laid in a stone manger. He's going to be laid in a stone tomb at his death to match the manger at his birth. Again, there's a kind of foreshadowing as he's laid in a coffin-like structure of stone at his birth, pointing ahead to his death. He's born in the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And then he's placed in a feed box, presumably with the animals gathered around. The nativity sets always have animals. The hymns mention the animals. It makes sense that the animals were there. If, it's a, if this is uh, the manger's there, why wouldn't the animals be there as well? It makes sense to, to, to envision the animals being there as well. He's born in the house of bread and placed in a feed box. He obviously has come to be food for the world. He is the bread that has come down from heaven for the life of the world. Fulfilling the manna and all the other feasts and meals of the Old Testament. And of course, this comes to fulfillment towards the end of the Gospel when He truly offers His flesh as bread and His blood as drink in the Last Supper. And indeed, we can go further with this. The animals that were likely gathered round the manger were probably a mix of clean and unclean animals. Barnyard animals always are some kind of mix of clean and unclean animals. And if you go back to the book of Leviticus, you find that these different types of animals, clean and unclean, uh, really represent or symbolize Jews and Gentiles. And so there he is being offered as 
food for the world for both Jew and Gentile. He's come to save both Jew and Gentile. He will unite Jew and Gentile. He will reign over Jew and Gentile, making them one. And how will He do this? How will He reconcile Jew and Gentile to God and to one another? Well, it's through His death and resurrection. And so again, you have foreshadowing and fulfillment. All throughout the birth narratives, you have foreshadowing and fulfillment. In fact, it's interesting that shepherds, these Jewish shepherds come to visit him. These shepherds who are right outside of Bethlehem. And then you've also got these magi from the east, these Gentile wise men, Gentile god fears who also come to see him. And so what do you have? Jew and Gentile coming to celebrate his birth, bending the knee to the newborn king, worshiping him together. And again, this is the fulfillment of a wide variety of Old Covenant prophecies and also foreshadows what will happen after His death and resurrection when Jew and Gentile are blended together into one new family, the church. Again, you've got fulfillment and foreshadowing. The shepherds who come to worship Him recall David who was the shepherd who praised God in song and prayer just as these Shepherds do. And of course, they also point ahead to the apostles whom Jesus will appoint as shepherds over the flock of his new Israel after his resurrection. Again, in the shepherds, we see fulfillment and foreshadowing. Same with the Magi. The Magi point ahead to the mission of the Gentiles. They are the first fruits of a full harvest that is to come when the nations flow into the kingdom of Christ. The Magi are not necessarily kings, but they are certainly part of a royal court, uh, at the very least advisors to kings. And they're coming as a clear fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy we read this morning in Isaiah chapter 60. The prophet says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The Gentiles shall come to your light. And kings, to the brightness of your rising, the wealth of the Gentiles. Think of the gifts of the Magi. The gifts, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Camels shall come to your land, bringing gold and incense, proclaiming the praises of the Lord. This is exactly what the Magi did. So they're coming to worship Jesus. They're bringing gifts. They're riding even on camels, it seems. It is all a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And of course, it's also a foreshadowing, pointing ahead to the nations that will stream into Christ's kingdom, bringing their treasures, their gifts with them as they come to worship before Him. In a way, you could say the arrival of the Magi is the Great Commission getting underway before Jesus even gives it. It's not just a fulfillment of passages like Isaiah 60. It's also a foreshadowing of what is to come. Again and again, we see this fulfillment and foreshadowing. Luke tells us at his birth, Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now, there's not really anything surprising about that. It's not even the kind of thing that needs to be noted. If you were uh, recounting a birth, would you say, and then the mother wrapped the child in a blanket? I mean, all mothers do that. Mothers have always do that. They continue to do that. There really is nothing noteworthy about it. Why are we told this? Every baby in the ancient world was swaddled. So why is this included as a detail in the Gospel account? It's interesting, the angels tell the shepherds this will be a sign for them. The angels say, this will be a sign to you that the baby will be wrapped in swaddling cloths. Well, what is that a sign of? How is that a sign? Well, we need to see this is not the only time his body will be wrapped in cloth. It happens at his birth. 
It also happens at His burial when His body is once again bound in linen cloths. Again, what do we see? His birth points ahead to His death. The swaddling cloths are a sign of His coming death and burial. It's a foreshadowing. It's anticipating what is to come. I think we see this as well in the names of the principal characters involved. Mary and Joseph are there at his birth. There is another Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who is there at his death, who provides the tomb, this new tomb for Jesus to be placed in after his death. And of course, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and when he rises from the grave, there are several Marys present. There are all kinds of Marys present at the end of the gospel accounts, including Mary, his mother, but also Mary Magdalene and assorted other Marys. Angels are there as well. They're there at the beginning and end of the gospel. In fact, again, here we see not just a foreshadowing, but a fulfillment Throughout the Old Testament, angels announced special births, especially to barren women. We saw this with, uh, it happens with Sarah in the book of Genesis. We saw it with Manoah's wife in the book of Judges. It happens again and again. Angels announce special births. So it is here. The angel announces the birth of Jesus to Mary and then to Joseph. But it's also interesting how angels present at his birth anticipate and foreshadow what is to come later in the gospel account. Within the Gospels, angels were present to announce Christ's birth to the shepherds. Angels were also present at the empty tomb to announce Christ's rebirth, His resurrection from the tomb, which He has, again, transformed into a womb. Angels are there at the empty tomb to announce Christ's resurrection to the apostles. Angels announce His birth and His rebirth. There's a 40-day period at His birth. Now, there are all kinds of uh, blocks of 40, time blocks of 40 that are significant in the Scripture and we can connect all of these together. But let me just point this out to you. There is a 40-day period, a 40-day block at His birth. And a lot happens within those first 40 days of Jesus' life, including visits from the shepherds and the Magi. Uh, it seems that also within that 40-day period, uh, the flight down to Egypt to escape Herod's slaughter of the innocents that Matthew's Gospel talks about. Uh, but according to Luke, what do we find at the end of this 40 days? Why is this 40-day block significant? At the end of this 40-day period, Joseph and Mary went back to Jerusalem to the temple to present Jesus in the temple and to offer sacrifice for Mary's purification, which the law prescribed to happen on the 40th day. Well, there's also a 40-day period after his rebirth, that is, after his resurrection. 40 days after his resurrection is his ascension, when he is presented in the heavenly temple. 40 days after birth, presented in the earthly temple. 40 days after his resurrection, he's presented in the heavenly temple. And to make purification, not just of Mary, but of the whole world, by applying his sacrifice to his people, to the nation. In Luke chapter 2, a man and a woman witness to this infant's identity, Simeon and Anna. Uh, They're both old. Uh, They are representative of the old covenant in their old age, but they announce who Jesus is to all who will listen, and they're really associated, connected with the temple. Well, at the end of Luke's Gospel, what do we find? We have another male-female couple who become witnesses to Christ's resurrection identity. 
They don't understand who he is right at first, but as they walk along the road, as they walk, walk along the way to Emmaus, Jesus slowly unveils his identity to them until finally in the breaking of bread, their eyes are open and they see Jesus for who he is. At the beginning of the gospel, you have a man and a woman who bear witness to Jesus' identity. At the end of the gospel in Luke chapter 24, you have a man and a woman who bear witness to Jesus' resurrection identity. At the beginning of the gospel, there is rejoicing over Jesus' birth. There are songs, there's joy, there's especially rejoicing in the temple. And if you fast forward to the end of Luke's gospel, what do you find? There is rejoicing, there is singing, there is praising in the temple over his resurrection. There's a match, there's a symmetry. And if we keep going in Luke's gospel in chapter 2, uh, we find the next story after Simeon and Anna, really, the, and, and his presentation in the temple. Really, the next story is his family uh, taking a trip to Jerusalem again. It's very interesting in Luke chapter two. This is now when Jesus is twelve years old. He and his parents make a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover. Well, that also is an anticipation, a foreshadow. It's a fulfillment in various ways as well, but it's also an anticipation. And it's especially interesting how this gets worked out in Luke's Gospel. Starting in Luke chapter 9, a big chunk of Luke's Gospel will be taken up with Jesus' climactic journey, again, from Galilee to Jerusalem and again for the Passover. It's another cycle of the same kind of thing, only now with Jesus much older. In Luke chapter 2, 12-year-old Jesus is lost for three days and then found. And Jesus explains he had to be about his father's business. Later on, Jesus will again be lost for three days and then found in the resurrection. And again, what has he been doing? He's been doing his father's business. When it's time for Jesus to be born, he is relegated to a stable because there is no room for Mary and Joseph in the guest room. Now, some translations, like the one I read this morning, will say there is no room for them in the inn. And that's given rise to all kinds of uh, myths about an innkeeper who turns them away and all of that. There's really none of that in the story. The word doesn't mean inn, like a commercial establishment. It actually means guest room. It's the same word that will be used later in Luke's Gospel for the upper room where Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with His disciples. Again, you have a link, only this time it's by contrast. No room for Him in the guest room and His birth, but later there will be room for Him and His disciples, His new holy family, as it were, in the guest room just before His death. At his birth, the angels sing glory to God, peace on earth, and goodwill towards men on whom his favor rests. The angels here are announcing that Jesus is the promised king. Their song, their words, their language here is laced with allusions to key words and, and, and themes and motifs and concepts out of the Old Testament scriptures. Every single one of these words traces back to the Old Testament and is loaded with content. It's a way of saying Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament prophets announced. Everything God had promised to His Old Covenant people is coming to fulfillment in this child. This is the revelation of the glory of God. This is God's peace coming to earth. God's goodwill towards all people is found here. The angels are announcing Jesus is the promised King. They are declaring that God's promised Savior, Liberator, the new David, has arrived. This 
angel, a solitary angel at first, but then a whole host of angels, a, a, an army of angels, a cloud of angels, begin to announce this, it seems, in song, this angelic choir, this glory cloud, this angelic choir marching through the sky, chanting God's praises, praising God for fulfilling His promises in the birth of this child. But the language they, they use, it not only shows Jesus is the, uh, the, 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 he's going to fulfill the prophetic vision of the kingdom, a kingdom of glory and of shalom, of peace, a kingdom that brings transformation to the whole world, a kingdom that showers men with the grace and goodwill of God, a kingdom that reveals the favor of God. All of that, again, is rooted in old covenant prophetic expectations now coming to pass, the angels announced. But the language of the angels also suggests what is to come. That this Jesus is going to be a rival. He's going to be set up as a kind of rival to earthly rulers. And the earthly rulers are not going to like this. Jesus has come to be a king. And earthly rulers are not going to like that. In Matthew's Gospel, we see how Herod doesn't like it. But the language here used by the angel is especially targeted at Caesar, at Caesar Augustus. The angels announce that he is the son of David, which means he's God's promised king. He is called Savior and Lord. Well, those are titles that Augustus claimed for himself. Augustus claimed to be the incarnation of God on earth, as it were. The Lord and Savior of all people. But now the angels say those titles belong to Jesus. The song of the angels anticipates a showdown between Jesus and the powers that be. You can't have this baby born into the world announced as a king and a savior without certain earthly kings getting real nervous and concerned about that and pushing back against it, which is, of course, exactly what happens. The angels announce peace, that he's come to bring peace on earth. Well, Augustus had established a kind of peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Supposedly, he had brought peace to earth. That was a very fragile peace. It was a peace built on shedding the blood of one's enemies. It was a kind of peace, but not true peace. Not the peace the prophets had promised. Jesus comes to bring true peace. Peace between man and God. Peace between man and man. Jesus will be the true emperor bringing in the true peace. The true king bringing in a kingdom of, of peace, a kingdom of truth and grace. And of course, he will do all of this through his death and resurrection. The powers that be will do their worst to him, crucifying him. But he will come back from the grave now as king of kings and lord of lords. The star that the Magi followed communicates really the same message that the angels communicated, namely, that God's promised king is here. The angels make it as a verbal announcement. The star is that announcement in symbolic form. But it's the same announcement. The angels and the star go together. What can we say about this star? In Numbers 24, Balaam prophesied, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall arise out of Israel. The star and the scepter go together. Isaiah described God's glory shining on the Gentiles, leading them to God's kingdom, to God's promised king. And of course, that's what happens. As the Magi follow the stars, they follow this revelation of the Shekinah glory of God. It leads them to the king. And they come bringing gifts. Again, that fulfillment of Isaiah 60. The star announces the arrival of a king. 
Which is why the Magi go to Herod in Matthew chapter 2 and ask, where is this King of the Jews that has been born? We want to find Him that we may worship Him. And again, Herod understands a rival has been born. And that's why instead of seeking to worship this newborn king, he seeks to have him killed. I think a really good case can be made that the glory cloud full of angels that appear to the shepherds is the same as the glory star that appeared to the Magi and that stood above the house where Jesus was born. A lot of associations and connections here. In the Old Covenant, uh, this glory cloud is associated with, uh, with the tabernacle. The glory cloud fills the tabernacle. It's associated with the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the most holy place between the cherubim. Uh, Isaiah uh, pictures it as God's heavenly throne chariot, a, a glory cloud full of angels and light moving through the heavens as, as God moves about from place to place, exercising His reign, His sovereignty. Isaiah associates this glory cloud with God's throne in heaven. Further, we could say the glory star that led the Magi to Jesus is very much like the glory cloud and pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness to the promised land. Same kind of thing. And it's the same glory cloud of angels that at the end of the Gospel will carry Jesus up into heaven in His ascension. That glory cloud of angels that with the throne in the cloud, all of that is there at the ascension of Jesus as well. We could keep going and going with these kinds of associations and connections. Connections between Jesus' birth and the Old Covenant connections between Jesus' birth and the resurrection that is to come. We can keep showing all kinds of ways in which these birth narratives show us how Jesus fulfills what came before and how these birth narratives foreshadow what is to come. The connections really are virtually limitless. His birth is a fulfillment and a foreshadow. But what I want to do here is draw out a few implications of this. What is the significance of this for us, what does it mean that God has come into the world in the man Jesus? What does it mean that the eternal Son of God is now incarnate in human flesh? Luke is telling us the story of the incarnation, the birth of God's Son into the world. Who is Jesus? There's no other way to say it. He is fully God and fully man. One with God and one with us. He has two natures in His one person. A divine nature and a human nature. He is the Son of God and the Son of Mary. He will sit on David's throne and on God's throne. The church father Basel called it the mystery of all mysteries. That the great God became a little baby. God has entered into the whole range of human experience in the Incarnation. The, incarnations, the Incarnation means God has hungered and thirsted. God has walked our dusty roads and eaten our food. God has endured pain, suffering, humiliation, rejection, temptation. Ultimately, God even experienced death. God suffered and died in the man Jesus on the cross. The incarnation in every way is a miracle. Augustine described the miracle this way, He who rules the world now lays in a manger. The Word of God came as a wordless child. He whom the heavens cannot contain was contained in the virgin's womb. So Mary ruled our King. She carried the One 
in whom we exist. She fed the bread that has come down from heaven. His divinity was manifest in His marvelous weakness and humility. And I would say Augustine is exactly right. The incarnation is a true revelation of God, of God's life, of God's character, of God's heart. It shows us the love and the humility of who God is. As a miracle, the incarnation is full of surprises. It's full of paradoxes. The incarnation means the God who has created us has become one of us. God shares our humanity. He shares our flesh and blood. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us because He is God as us. He is God with us because He is God as one of us. God with man because He is God as man. The incarnation means God has humbled Himself to become a man, but in doing so, it also means God has exalted our humanity. And so the, revel- the, the incarnation not only reveals true Godhood, the incarnation also reveals true manhood. You want to see what God's life looks like? Look at Jesus. But you want to see what human life really should look like? Look to Jesus. The incarnation shows us it is good to be human. The incarnation shows us our humanness can be filled with God's presence. In our humanness, we can be filled with God's love and God's wisdom. The incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the goodness of creation. Of course, the resurrection is as well. The incarnation shows us God loves this material, physical world. God has entered into it in order to redeem it and restore it. The incarnation shows us our embodiment is good. The body is good. We're not like Plato who described the body as a prison house for the soul. Soul good, body bad. No, that's not the Christian view. And because the incarnation has affirmed the goodness of our humanness, the goodness of our embodiment, it has ennobled and transformed human life in every way. The incarnation has given rise to a new kind of culture. This King who came, this God incarnate who has come among us, this transforms all of human life. It gives way to, uh, uh, it gives rise to a new way of human life. A whole new way of living is found in Christ's incarnation. And Christians have always seen this. Now for 2,000 years we've seen it. Christians saw in Christ uh, compassion and love like had never before been seen in the world. Christians wanted to imitate Christ's compassion, especially in caring for those suffering from bodily ailments. And so they poured themselves out in service to the sick. And in doing so, ultimately formed a new institution called the hospital. Yes, the hospital is a Christian invention that can be traced back to the Incarnation. Christians wanted to be filled with Christ's wisdom. Christians wanted to love God with their minds as Christ commanded. And so they worked to form what became known as the university. A place where they could pour out their intellects in service to others. Yes, the university is a Christian invention tracing back to the Incarnation. Christians wanted to reflect the beauty of Christ's holiness and the beauty of Christ's character because He is the image of the invisible God. And so Christians poured themselves out into the arts, building cathedrals, composing great music, writing glorious stories. Yes, 
the arts, the transformation of the arts traced back to the incarnation. Christians wanted to follow Christ's example in working with their hands. After all, he worked as a carpenter for many more years than he worked as a preacher. Christians saw Jesus, the son of the carpenter, working with his hands. And realize that all of human labor can be dedicated to God, to God's glory, to God's kingdom. And so, what did Christians do? They poured themselves out into craftsmanship, showing that all our work is to be holy to the Lord. The incarnation eliminated that secular, sacred divide that says some things are important and some things are not. No, it all matters. The incarnation shows it all matters to God. Christians saw Christ in the incarnation coming, eating and drinking. Essentially, Christ was the life of the party everywhere He went. And so, what have Christians done? Christians have devoted themselves to feasting and learning to rejoice to the glory of God, enjoying all of the gifts God grants to us. The incarnation affirms a culture of celebration. Of celebration without guilt. The Christians saw Christ performing a miracle at a wedding. And then calling the church His bride. They saw Christ blessing the little children. And so what have Christians done? We poured ourselves out into family life. Into our marriages and into our children. Because Christ has affirmed the family as foundational to God's created order. Christians saw Christ is a King. Christ came to rule to be King of kings and Lord of lords. And indeed, if He is King of kings, If Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar is not. And so the state has to be put in its proper place. The state is not God walking on earth. That was Jesus. Politics is not the most important thing in life. Politics has to be put in its proper place. And so because of the incarnation, Christians came to oppose statism in any and every form. Affirming, yes, the goodness of political rule, but denying that that political rule can ever be absolute. You see what all of this is? We could keep going with this. But this is incarnational living. The incarnation means our bodies matter. Our minds matter. Our work matters. Our relationships matter. Our families matter. Our art and our music matter. Our politics matter. The incarnation means everything matters. The incarnation is the one thing that changes everything. That's what these Gospel accounts Screen out. You can't celebrate Christmas without the doctrine. That's where I started this morning. But you also can't reduce the Christian faith to a set of doctrines as if it were just an ideology. No, it's so much more. It is a way of life. It is a faith that lives. A faith that loves. It's not just ideas. It's practices. It's liturgies. It's feasts. It's family, it's art, it's institutions. It's transformative of everything. It's about souls, yes, but it's also about society. It's about eating and drinking and economics and education and everything else. It is all-encompassing. The incarnation means not only God is here among us, the incarnation means a new creation is here. At Christmas, we celebrate not just the birth of Christ, but the birth of a new world. We celebrate not just the birth of Jesus, but the rebirth of the whole creation in Him. Why? Because Christmas means our God was born into a stable to a young woman named Mary. Christmas means God came to suffer and die and rise again for us. 
Christmas means the same one who opened Mary's womb also opened Joseph's tomb. Christmas means joy to the world. The Lord has come. Christmas means peace on earth. Christmas means God has humbled Himself in order to exalt us. Christmas means human life is now sanctified to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do give You thanks for Christmas, for the birth of Your Son into the world. Help us to celebrate Christmas like Christians. Help us to live like Christians, like followers of Jesus, Your Son incarnate. May His Lordship transform everything we do. May the revelation He has given us of true Godhood and true manhood transform us in all our endeavors. This we pray, giving You thanks and praise in His name. Yeah.